0: All right, man, I'm exhausted now. I don't know if I can go on, but let me try. Uh, We're in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. You want to open your Bible to the book of Genesis? Or if you have some kind of iPhone or iPad or a lesser uh, device, you can use that as well. (laughs) Put it on, uh, I was going to say, put it on, set it to stun, but uh, just put it on uh, vibrate so that uh, I don't have to say something funny about you when your phone goes off. Genesis 16, verses 1 through 16. This is about the time everybody tries to call me to see if my phone is on vibrate, which it is, so don't waste your time. The topic we're going to find here in Genesis 16 is this Sarah calls upon her maidservant Hagar to bear Abraham a son. The title of our message, Mammy Hagar. Let's have a word of prayer. It's very appropriate. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We've been building up to it, Lord. Now we're excited to get into it and to see how that in your uh, revealing yourself to Abraham and to Sarah and to Hagar, you still reveal yourself to people today, to believers and non-believers alike. And I pray, Lord, that as we work through this interesting and fascinating episode We learn more about what it means to be your friend, more about faith, uh, more about salvation, Lord, as we see Hagar get saved as you reveal yourself to her. And of course, Lord, we pray that as Christians we would be strengthened in our faith, that we'd be built up so that when we do re-enter that place, Lord, where you strategically planted us, that we would make a difference, that grace would win the day. And Lord, we we love to be in the presence of those that don't know you to see your Holy Spirit drawing their hearts to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do a supernatural work. There's really nothing we can say or do except talk about you and then you reveal yourself to the people that are here today who don't really know you. May they know that their Redeemer lives, lives forevermore. And that you died for them, that they could have eternal life. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Singer-songwriter Keith Green captures a sense of the misguided longing of God's wandering people to return to Egypt in his song, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. Here's some of the lyrics: It says, So you want to go back to Egypt where it's warm and secure? Are you sorry you bought the one-way ticket when you thought you were sure? You wanted to live in the land of promise, but now it's getting so hard. Are you sorry you're out here in the desert instead of your own backyard? Eating leeks and onions by the Nile. Ooh, what breath? But dining out in style. Ooh, my life's on the skids. Give me the pyramids. And so it's a little bit satirical, but it captures that sense that you get in, uh, later on in Genesis and Exodus of the people wanting to get back into Egypt. Egypt. Long after the children of Israel entered their promised land, they still sometimes looked to Egypt as a solution to their perceived problems. It prompted God to say to them in Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. And so when God's people had just come out of Egypt, they wanted to go back. When they had been out for years, they still looked back to Egypt for their help. Although not explicitly stated in the Bible, Christians have long recognized Egypt as a type of the world we have been delivered out from, always beckoning us to return to its ways and often preying on our wants. C.I. Schofield, who edited the Schofield Bible, noted, and I quote, The resort to Egypt is typical of the tendency to substitute for lost spiritual power the fleshly resources of the world. As we dig into Genesis 16, this typical tendency to look to Egypt is going to play a very prominent role. A childless Abraham and Sarah turn to an Egyptian servant seeking an Egyptian solution to their being childless. It prompts us to consider how drawn away from the Lord we may be by the ways and the wanting of Egypt. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the ways of Egypt are not your servant. Number two, the wanting of Egypt is not your solution. In verses one through five, we're going to see that the ways of Egypt are not your servant. God had promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky and the dust of the earth. He, however, remained childless, and now he was in his late 80s. Abraham had earlier suggested that perhaps Eleazar, a servant born in his household, could be his heir and somehow fulfill God's promises. God said no, and he told Abraham, this is Genesis 14, and I quote, One who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Evidently barren at age 76, Sarah took a stab at a possible solution. Maybe Abraham could produce an heir from his own body, but not hers, by using the body of another woman. And so in verse 1, now Sarai, who is Sarah, Abram, who is Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Hagar. So Sarah said to Abraham, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarah. Then Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abraham to be his wife after Abraham had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. Now I used to really fault Sarah for her suggestion, largely based on... Her upcoming reaction to Hagar's pregnancy, not so much anymore. Now, her suggestion was still wrong, but her heart was to see God's promises fulfilled and to see her husband vindicated for following God into the unknown. The truth is she was supporting her husband and what he had chosen, the life that they, he had chosen for them. She did this for Abraham and for his ministry and for his testimony. She knew that he had been promised this uh, offspring, that he would be the father of many nations. And she knew that she was barren. She knew that the child would come from Abraham's body. And the only way she could figure that that could happen was if he took another wife. Uh, And as painful as that must have been for her, I mean, ladies, really think about it. You know, it's it's no less painful in an ancient culture than it would be today. She... Uh, submitted herself to that, as it were. And so, uh, you know, let's cut Sarah some slack. She was really trying to support her husband's ministry. Now, when Sarah suggested Abraham take Hagar to bear him a child, we read that it was also to be his wife. She was suggesting a marriage practice that was widely accepted. It was perfectly legal, and in their case it seemed logical, but it was not biblical, We know from the Garden of Eden that God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for life. Marriage is to be monogamous and heterosexual. Abraham and Sarah were a monogamous, heterosexual couple at a time when society around them was polygamous and homosexual. We saw polygamy when Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt. Sarah was taken by the Pharaoh with the expectation she'd become one of his multiple wives. We'll see the open acceptance of homosexuality in the upcoming episode in Sodom and Gomorrah when God decides that he is going to judge those cities. Now, in an effort to be accurate, let me uh, make a clarification. Polygamy is really a catch-all term, and it is expressed in three different ways. Polygyny is a man who has multiple simultaneous wives, Polyandry is where a woman has multiple simultaneous husbands and group marriage, a family unit consisting of multiple husbands and multiple wives. All of that uh, comes under the banner of polygamy, but for our purposes, since we're talking about Abraham uh, having uh, both uh, Sarah and Hagar as wives, we're going to refer to it as polygamy. Now, Abraham and Sarah were living biblically separated lives in the midst of a culture given to unbiblical practices. And when you boil it down, even in the area of marriage and family, so are we. We're in this exact same position today, are we not? Uh, We believe in the Bible and the God of the Bible, in monogamous heterosexual marriage. And our culture is more and more moving uh, away from that into both polygamy and marriage of, you know, with multiple partners uh, and into homosexual marriage. And so we're in the same situation in a sense that Abraham and Sarah were in. Now expanding that to talk about not just marriage but by definition the Christian is always to be separated from any unbiblical practice of the culture even when they are legal and seem logical just because something is legal and recognized doesn't mean it's biblical and that the Christian has the uh, that a Christian should partake of it so bear that in mind now, Sarah sought to fulfill God's spiritual purposes by making Egypt serve her presumed needs. She looked around her, she saw the practices of the world, and she thought, this is what everybody else would do in this situation. This is what we're going to do. Nothing wrong with it, she thought, because it's legal and cultural. It was wrong for them, disastrously wrong The ways of Egypt can never serve the Christian. The ways of Egypt, or we could just simply say the ways of the world, they tend to permeate our thinking because for most of us, if you became a Christian later in life, that's how you were raised. You were raised in the ways of the world to think like the world. And even if you weren't raised in that, we experience it all the time, all around us. We're in the world. And it has its own value system, its own way of thinking that is always trying to press itself in on us. Everything has a worldly spin, so to speak, so that it almost seems compatible with our walk with the Lord if we're not careful. We must therefore make a concerted effort to recognize and avoid the ways of the world uh, so that we don't find ourselves like Hagar or like Sarah, excuse me, just thinking, well, this, this is a. Potential solution. Let's just go in this direction. Uh, For one thing, we need to look to God for our contentment, our soul contentment. Sarah said it was God who had restrained her from bearing children. She gave testimony. She said, God has restrained me from bearing children. She knew that she was in God's hands, but she refused to be content. ...with her situation in light of God's promises. So God said, you're going to have a child. Abraham, it's going to come from your body. I'm restraining Sarah right now from having children. She was discontent. And she decided to take spiritual matters into her own worldly hands. And I would suggest that many times when we borrow from the world... ...it's because there is a discontent in our heart. We're not content... In the place or with the people that God has given us. Then there's the fact that we deplore waiting. I don't, maybe you like to wait. Um, I don't like to wait for almost anything. Uh, even things I like to do, I would rather not wait for. There's very few things that I will wait for. Uh, and, and most people don't like waiting. All you have to do is drive down the road. You know, and and you'll find that that people don't like to wait. That's why they're cutting you off and throwing things out their window at you and, you know, those kinds of things, because they don't want to wait. God had promised a child, but Abraham and Sarah grew tired of waiting and they thought they could somehow then speed up the process. Then there's the truth that we don't believe God will fulfill his promises because they seem to us improbable or impossible. Much as we hate to admit it, Oftentimes we really don't trust God to do the miraculous. We're more mechanical. We want to figure things out ourselves. And so if there's something that God has set before us or some vision he's given us or some promise or whatever it might be, uh, we uh, think, well, that's beyond, you know, I don't see how God could fulfill that even though he's God. I believe he does miracles, but not for me. And so I start to think of my own mechanical way of fulfilling it. And other times I'd have to say that it's just plain obvious that what we're doing is something borrowed from the world. That was certainly the case here. I mean, I don't think it's being judgmental at all to look at Abraham and Sarah and to say, guys, God said you were to be one man, one woman for life, and this idea that you're going to have another wife because that's what they do in Egypt when they're childless, this is definitely borrowing something from the world that is wrong. Uh, And and it turns out to have some bad uh, connotations. And so uh, a lot of times we look at stuff... As Christians, sometimes as whole churches, we borrow things from the world. It doesn't help that we give them Christian names. You can't just put Christian at the, on the beginning of something and think that it has magically become something that God wants us to do. And so we have to be very careful that we're not borrowing the techniques of the world. And so in verse 4, He went into Hagar, she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarah said to Abraham, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. Well, gee, thanks a lot. However, I mean, you read in this and, you know, obviously we're not getting the whole story. It seems like Sarah goes in, says to Abraham, this is what you should do. Abraham does it. And then she says, why did you do that? And if we're not careful, all the guys are like elbowing their wives saying, See, you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, you know, that kind of thing. Just because Sarah suggested this to Abraham, man up. Say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. What are you, crazy? I mean, have a little bit of discord in your family for a while and do the right thing. I mean, Abraham, she, you know, she didn't hold a gun to his head. She, she had an idea. Nothing wrong with that. It was a good idea from her point of view because she was trying to help her husband just so man up and say, you know, Sarah, I don't think that's a good idea. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 and see what God has in mind, dear. Let's just pray about this for a while. I don't really see myself and Hagar hitting it off and stuff. And so, you know, just because somebody suggests something doesn't mean you have to do it. Uh, and it, it, this is what it means sometimes to be the, the head of the house. You think, well, I don't want to get blamed for something. Well, if, you, if it's stupid, you should, of course you're going to get blamed for it. It doesn't matter whose idea it was. It was your decision. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, you do. So quit being a dummy. So he went into Hagar. She conceived. Now, pardon the pun, but this was an ill-conceived plan. <laughs> I waited all morning for that. It brought nothing but bitterness and strife. Well, after you didn't laugh at the Sammy Hagar thing, I thought, I'm in trouble here. But uh, this thing brought nothing but bitterness and strife and contention into their home and into the larger household. Where there is bitterness and strife and contention, it's pretty obvious folks are going the way of the world. Because that's not from the Spirit of God. It's not from the grace of God. However, it's also possible for things to seemingly be going great. And yet the results are from some worldly plan. Worldliness can stir things up in a bad way, but it can also lead you to settle for less. I'd offer Abraham's nephew Lot as an example. Now we know the end of Lot's story, and we don't want to be like Lot, but at this, just look at Lot at this time. Abraham is living you know, in tents out in the wilderness, He's been promised a land that he'll never own and children that he doesn't have. Meantime, Lot has moved into Sodom, and he's like the mayor of Sodom. And for, from an outward perspective, from a worldly perspective, he's a pretty successful guy. He's doing really well. And so, uh, but it, obviously, Lot is the poster child for worldliness. We know that looking back on his life. So a lot of times you can be worldly, but you're actually settling for less than God has for you. There's no sacrifice in your life. There's no waiting on the Lord. There's no sojourning and living as a stranger and a pilgrim. Hey, a lot of times the Christian life, it does involve certain sacrifice, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you think it would because Jesus says it does. and, And then we read... Were to be living sacrifices, but a lot of times you look at your life, I look at my life and think, I, I don't know that I'm sacrificing anything. And, and so there's sometimes a disconnect. The ways of the world can work on a certain level. Uh, back when we, early on when we were uh, buying our land and contemplating building and building projects and things like that, we were contacted regularly by people who said they could guarantee That they could raise a certain amount of money from our congregation if they would come in and do their presentation. Uh, And I know that that's true because it's all based on worldly techniques of getting people to give and forcing people and intimidating and manipulating people and and stuff like that. I mean, so, um, you know, I don't think that you should, I I don't think spiritually you can say, well, I can guarantee. How many people and what's your average and let me crunch the numbers. And I can guarantee you a certain amount. Okay, well that's great. So then you get that certain amount. What if God wanted to do something different, better, greater? You ever think about that? Yeah, that's cool. And so let's just wait on the Lord. We don't. And so on the outward, it seems oh it's successful. Yeah, the thermometer blew its top off. <laughs> Maybe God wants to do something else. And so uh, you know the world can seem awfully successful. When we put our Christian name on it, you and I must therefore honestly approach God and want to be sure that we are not seeking the ways of the world to serve our perceived needs or even to fulfill God's improbable promises. Never assume your ways are free from the world's influence. Let's be sure by waiting on the Lord. Now, verses six through 16, the wanting of Egypt is not your solution. Hagar's in a bad situation. And then she makes it worse by despising Sarah. But then again, look at what Sarah did to her. Sure, Hagar was a maidservant and technically a slave, but did Sarah really have to treat her like a slave? I mean, what must it have been like for Hagar to one day be going about her chores? Maybe she was, you know, brushing a camel. Do camels get brushed? I don't want to show my ignorance. It's all over me all the time anyway. But So she's out brushing the camel. And Sarah sends her and says, Hey, right now, what have you been doing? I've been brushing the camel. Okay, hey, right now I've got something for you to do. You're going to sleep with my 86-year-old husband because I want a boy. W- Hello? What? Yeah, I- I've got a chore for you. Abraham's in the next room. <laughs> You're going to sleep with him because I, cho- I need a child. All right, well, I can cut Hagar some slack. Because she's not even saved, we, you know, until she sees the Lord in a few minutes. Uh, verse 6. So Abraham said to Sarah, your maid's in your hand. Do to her as you please. This guy's making... Uh, he's, a, he's regressing. <laughs> but anyway, and when Sarah dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. It was a desperate act. Here she is, a pregnant slave woman, all by herself, traveling through a harsh wilderness... I have sympathy for her, and so did the Lord. Because in verse 7, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. I'm pretty sure this is the first use of the phrase, the angel of the Lord, in Scripture. We believe this to be a pre-incarnation appearance on earth by Jesus Christ. Don't let the word angel throw you. It simply means messenger. It doesn't necessarily mean a created being. And besides, in a moment, Hagar is going to call this individual God on the way to Shur, is on the way back to Egypt. It's believed by most reliable commentators that Hagar was acquired by Abraham and Sarah while they were down in Egypt some years before. She was an Egyptian. We know because the text says that probably acquired in Egypt. Now she's on her way back. Hagar wanted Egypt. She thought Egypt was her solution. In verse eight. He said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. The Lord knew her by name. Now, we take this for granted, but it's really astonishing. Does anybody famous know your name? I mean, maybe in some cases, you, you know, every now and then somebody knows a famous celebrity or a famous person, but for the most part, you know, if you think of somebody who's really famous or who has a lot of authority, they don't know who you are. They don't know you from Adam, we would say. And so here's the creator of the universe who not only knows Hagar by name, he recognizes her, he went after her and found her. And so it's, a, it's really an amazing thing and we should let it sink in and not take it for granted. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress, And submit yourself under her hand. Man, everything was going so great until he said this. Return and submit? Are you crazy? And so I'm out in the wilderness. I'm fleeing for my life. And all of a sudden this amazing personage appears to me. I'm starting to think that it's divine. And I'm thinking, wow, this is so cool. God knows my name. What? Return and submit? Those are not the things we want to hear when we are on the run from our not-so-great circumstances. The Lord referred to Hagar as Sarah's maid. Why? It indicates that being Sarah's maid was at that time in her life Hagar's calling. It was to put her on notice that she, uh, that's who she was. That's where she should be. That's what she should be doing. God didn't just see her by the well. He'd been watching her in Abraham's household too. He'd been watching her, as Roz would say, always watching you. All right. First service, same thing. I'm not Jerry Seinfeld, that's for sure. Verse 10. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. All right, more good news. Verse 12. And he'll be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he'll dwell in the presence of all his brethren. He'll have the terrible twos his entire life. (laughs) He's the poster child for all the things that are wrong with children. But anyway, you can't believe how difficult it is to figure out who exactly are the modern-day descendants of Ishmael. Opinions range from all of the Arab people in the Middle East, to an argument that there are no descendants of Ishmael still alive. Obviously, both of those are extremes and both are wrong. Here's what I do know. There's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60 that indicates Ishmaelites will minister to the Lord when he sets up his 1,000-year kingdom on the earth in the future. So I know that there are descendants of Ishmael uh, today. uh, And even if they are against Israel today, they one day will be brought into the fold and worship the Lord. Verse 13, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You're the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Bier Laharoi. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Now, on the surface, we might think that's nothing too amazing. I mean, she has this amazing vision and all she can think of to say is, you're the God who sees. And you and I, we think, well, yeah, I mean, God is Omniscient, he's omnipresent. Obviously, we know that. Uh, by the way, if you've been a Christian for a while, and um, a, a young Christian, a new believer comes up to you and they share something with you that is an absolute revelation to them, and you know, don't don't kill that. Don't say, "Oh yeah, I learned that twenty-eight years and three minutes ago." Can't believe it's taken you this long. I know we wouldn't actually say, well, I know some people who would actually say that. But, uh, you know, sometimes we just, you know, just, in fact, don't even say, yeah, I know that. Or I knew that. I mean, get into it. Is that what you do with your children? I hope not. Your kids discover something for the first time and you've known, you know, and, and it's just, and you think, oh, wow, wow, that's so cool. Wow. Be like that with young Christians. Encourage them. On the surface, it doesn't seem too amazing, but it really is because she knew this by experience. And the only way to experience something like this is to be in a time of distress and see the Lord in it. And so there's a lot more to her name than just the fact that God is omnipresent. I can know that God is omnipresent and omniscient, but when he actually sees me and reveals himself to me in a situation, man, that's powerful. Another thing I was thinking about this it's the small experiencing of things that we already know that often minister to us the most. Consider this. I came across this quote this week. Dr. Karl Barth was one of the most brilliant and complex intellectuals of the 20th century. He wrote volume after massive volume on the meaning of life and faith. A reporter once asked Dr. Barth if he could summarize what he had said in all those volumes. Dr. Barth thought for a moment and then he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's pretty profound, really, when you get right down to it. You can know more than that, but that's really all that you need to know. I remember one of the very first messages I ever heard at Calvary Chapel of Riverside, which is now Harvest Christian Fellowship. uh, Paul Havsgaard, I think, was the pastor that night. And he said, you know, a lot of times you, you feel inadequate to share your faith or to talk about Jesus. He goes, but if, if, all you, if you got saved five minutes ago and all you really know is John 3.16 and you're saved, well, if that was enough for you, then it's enough for somebody else. And so just wherever you're at, whatever you know about God, just be honest to it and share. Uh, of course, we'll know more and we want to grow in our knowledge. But the more we grow, we don't want to become overly intellectual, do we? We don't want to be able to not explain things. If 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 I explain something and you don't get from it that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, then I am not explaining anything of any real value to you. A lot of times people say, oh man, this guy, he's so intelligent. Well, really? What did he say? I don't know. <laughs> because he uses words like obfuscation. I remember at, at uh, Gino's uh, graduation at FPU, the guy who was talking used the word obfuscate. And I thought, huh, should we censor that or, you know? <laughs> I, and I, I don't even know, I, I even used to know what it meant. Now I don't even know. But, you know, I mean, anybody can use big words, but that's not the point. The point is to reveal God. God came from heaven. You think Jesus could have used big words? Wow. God condescended to come and teach in parables and in figures, and He said, hmm, "Gene, you're not going to. It's going to be really hard to, you know, communicate to you. So look at this sower, or look at this water over here. Look at this. Here's something you can understand. A simpleton could understand this, and so, and yet it's the most profound truth that there is. Uh, and so we want to we want to keep things fairly simple. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament, he said. Several times to the church, he's writing the word of God. He says, I'm just reminding you of things that you already know. I I try to rebuke myself. I really like to listen to Bible teaching. I I love it. I love to listen to other people teach God's word. And sometimes people will say something and, and in my, you know, in that part of me that I try to deny, I think, oh, yeah, I know that. And then I I want to catch myself and say, if I know that, how come I'm not excited about that anymore? Why doesn't that excite me that I see that insight again and again and again? You know, uh, what's happened to me? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So Hagar bore Abram a son, verse 15, and Abram named his name uh, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Upon her return, Hagar obviously related her encounter with Jesus to Abraham and Sarah. Otherwise, how would he know how to name him? Hagar was wanting Egypt. Egypt was her fallback position, so to speak. We sometimes have a fallback position or a plan when things aren't going as smoothly as we'd like. We we like to have an escape plan. Or here's another way of looking at it. I found that with people, even as Christians... Uh, and you probably relate to this. We we're in a, a situation happens at work or at home or wherever, and we have a fight or flight mentality. It's like, am I going to fight this right now? This is wrong. I don't feel good about this. Or, you know, however. Am I going to fight this? Or am I just going to get out of this situation? What typically happens is that you find yourself in a situation where you kind of fight it for a while. You don't like it, but you fight it and you try and make it work. And then you throw up your hand and say, I'm done with this. I'm through with this. I, I need to come up with a fallback plan. And if we're not careful, that's what the world teaches us fight or flight. Everything should be smooth. And if it's not smooth, then you need to fight that. You have redress to fight that and you should follow that through to the end or just get out of there. You don't need that. Go somewhere else where you don't have those problems. I want to suggest to you that as a Christian, there's a third option and it is to be faithful and to endure in the place that God has put you. God came to Hagar and he says, I see your problem, but your Sarah's made and I haven't released you yet to leave. He will later on, by the way. He's going to give uh, Hagar the freedom to leave. But for right now, he says, I want you to return and remain. Man, that is so hard when people come to you and they're just being, you know, their job is getting them down and their situation is just so. But there's really nothing, you know, it's, it's not really sinful. Nobody's doing anything illegal. They're not being actually abused. It's just rough. And then you hear it out and you say, you know, here's what I think the Lord is saying. Return and remain. And let the grace of God fill that situation. Let the aroma of His sacrifice fill that. Is there someone else I can talk to? (laughs) Another staff pastor? Is there anybody? How about a professional psychologist? Anybody that I could talk to who I can eventually convince that my fight or flight reaction is the proper reaction. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't react that way when He had the stresses and pressures of His three-and-a-half-year ministry and then going to the cross. Jesus said, He goes, Hey, guys, if I wanted to, I could call legions of angels right now. What a fight that would have been. One angel kills like 100,000 Assyrians in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, I, I call an angel, a, a legion of angels right now. This is my fight reflex. Or flight. Everyone else ran from the Garden of Gethsemane while Jesus stood there and let Judas identify him with a kiss. You know why? Because he had just prayed and he got up from prayer and he knew that he was to endure the cross, despising the shame. But it was for the glory of God. It was for you and I that he did that. And so what does he do? He says, now Gene, I'm going to put you in a situation. You may not like it. After all, the world's a fallen place. Adam sinned in the Garden. You know that sin has come into the I've done everything I can. You see how things are unfolding. Right now we're in a time of long suffering. So you're going to be in a tough place. And you're going to be in more tough places as as I Terry said, so, but I want you to endure. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. You can fight if you want. You can make it sound spiritual. You can use spiritual words for your fighting. You can flee. You you know, at least in our country and in our situation, there are other places to flee. He says, but why don't you just remain faithful? Lord, I'm all alone. I was all alone. Oh, is there anything I can say, Lord, that will change your mind? Is there anything I'm going through that you didn't already go through for me? No. Will you trust me? Will you believe me? Will you let me strengthen you? Egypt is not your servant. You shouldn't borrow from its ways. You shouldn't want Egypt. Even if you've been a Christian your whole life, there's still a wanting after Egypt sometimes, the, the world and, the, and the, the ways of the world to accomplish certain things. Uh, stand with the Lord. Let Him stand with you. Let people see that He sees you and that He saves. Let's pray.